Welcome back to The Resilient Responder, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of our first responder and military communities. Here we talk about the job, mental wellness and resiliency, coaching, family, and living our best lives. Now, once again, here is your host, Keith Hanks. All right, folks, welcome back to The Resilient Responder podcast. I, again, am your host, Keith Hanks. Today's guest is Brian Paul, founder and president of Veterans for Life. Brian was raised in Mustang, Oklahoma, served as a machine gunner and rifle platoon leader in the 45th Infantry. When the Murrah Federal Building was bombed in uh, Oklahoma during a domestic terrorist act in 1995, he was deployed to the site and worked, among other responders, at the devastation, uh, receiving the State Activation Medal and Humanitarian Medal. Desiring to continue to serve the public, Brian became a career firefighter as well as an EMT for eight years in the Kansas City area. He had a great marriage, beautiful home, and a career he loved. Due mainly to the stresses of emergency work, Brian began self-medicating by heavily drinking. Failing health led Brian close to death. His kidneys, liver, and bone marrow became heavily damaged and were shutting down. After a painful divorce, homelessness, and suicidal ideation, Brian finally entered a 90-day treatment program for addiction and post-traumatic stress. Brian accredits his faith in God, his mother, and newfound purpose of helping others for saving his life and founded Veterans for Life USA to reach others who are still struggling. Brian, it is awesome to have you on. It's great to be here, man. I'm with another firefighter. I've done <laughs> I've done probably, I think this may be around 16 or 18 podcasts, and uh, it's just different. It's different when you're on with, a, with another firefighter, you know, emergency worker. It's good, right? I mean, it's, uh, I've done a few with some cops and, uh, and whatnot and, uh, us bucketheads, man, we, we, we just kind of jive and like we were talking about earlier, I'm sure there's gonna be some times here tonight where we, uh, you know, finish each other's sentences and, and that, and that's great. And and I think it's, it's awesome that you hear Brian, Brian, your story is, is very much echoes what we, what we try to talk about here when it comes to resilience and we all, anyone who knows and follows you on social media has seen a lot of your story. And uh, I'd like you to kind of just give us a little bit more than what I just read here and sort of tell us what Brian Paul does and, and you know, kind of get Brian Paul to where he is now. Yeah, absolutely, man. Again, thanks for having me. I always feel like it's, uh, I'm just grateful to be around to be able to share my story and mm. grateful for life, man, just to be alive and be able to you know, see the sunset and have friends and family. But you see, I, so my my story started out, started out I, I am from Mustang, Oklahoma, and uh, played sports, grew up out in the country riding horses and hmm. fish hunting. And, uh, I don't know if any of our viewers remember the old three Honda uh, three-wheelers. Oh, God. <laughs> the death machines? <laughs> the death machine. Yeah. That's what me and my friends rode hmm. out in the country and uh played football in high school and so then uh you know I graduated there in in 92 and then went to Oklahoma City University and uh joined a fraternity uh walked on the the basketball team there mm-hmm. and and um uh me and a, a friend who's now a lieutenant colonel um in the in the National Guard uh joined together and you know we we it really wasn't out of patriotism or or having our college paid for, we just wanted to be going and blowing shit up. Man. Nice. That's. I mean, I love it. <laughs> and blow shit up. That's why we joined. <laughs> uh, 
So we went to, of course, we, we joined, uh, we went infantry and joined, uh, went to Fort Benning and back to Benning and then back to Benning for Jeff School in Fort Hood, uh, Texas, Fort Lewis McCord, Washington, and Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. And, and uh, it wasn't long after I joined the National Guard is when the uh, Murrah building was bombed. If people remember Timothy McVeigh and that that mm. incident happened down there, that was the at the time it was the 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 largest act of of terrorism on U.S. soil. Right, one hundred and sixty eight people, and including nineteen kids, and and so I spent uh, two weeks down there uh, doing all kinds of different uh, tasks. But so I fulfilled my military obligation, moved up to Kansas City. I took a job with Roadway Express, uh, the, the trucking company, for about four and a half years. And we got bought out by Yellow Freight. And God was just tugging on my sleeve again. And hmm. and I guess I wasn't I wasn't quite ready to to uh, to get into the corporate America. I still wanted to serve. So I decided I want to be a, a firefighter. And. Uh, and I found out that in order to do that, you had to go and get your EMT or paramedic. Mm. So I put myself through EMT school and then a fire academy and started volunteering for a couple of years. And then I went full time uh, there in the Kansas City area uh, in a district that answered about 7,000 calls a year. And uh, I'd always been a social drinker. Uh, but for whatever reason, I, I got into that pattern of self-medicating after those tough calls and uh, after a few years it just got progressively worse uh, i found myself uh in a full bone addiction uh to alcohol and and uh doing all the things that that addicts do you know my drug of choice was alcohol and, and that led to a very painful divorce and and uh, homelessness and the loss of a job i went on light duty after a back injury and and uh, suicidal. I had had a, I put a, a little piece of shit, Lorcan 380, under my chin. Mm. And I, I believe I remember not pulling the trigger because it was, it wasn't a very big gun. Mm. Didn't want it to leave me, you know, a vegetable and people having to care for me. Right. So my, my attempt at suicide was alcohol and, um, and, my rock bottom was was sitting in my 2007 Jeep in a park in Kansas City, and it was, I believe, it was January, and uh, I had, you know, I had a, a 44 ounce Quick Trip cup that was full of ma mainly vodka, mm. and and I had to hold it with two hands because my hands are so shaky that if I held it with one, it would spill. I would just drop it. And I really didn't, it, I think the, there was two keys there um, to my turnaround at that very moment. And that was, was that God uh, without question spoke to me and said, you know, Brian, there is something else out there that to live for. And mm -hmm. it just, it was just in a, in a whisper, but it was, clear as day that God was telling me, Hey man, not yet. This is not your time. And, you know, the love for my mother who throughout the, the previous two years of struggling so bad, just never gave up on me. And should she have given up on me, I would not be here. 
And uh, my son Aiden was 11 years old at that time. And just the thought of, you know, I always had him in the back of my head that he was going to be growing up without a father. And uh, so I, that was, that was my turning point. Mm -hmm. I, I, I put down that, that cup of vodka and I picked up the phone and I called my mother and there was the gun in the seat next to me. It was to put the, to not pick up the gun, to put down the vodka, pick up my phone and call my mom. Thank God you did, man. Yeah. Well, and that, that is, that's the part of, of my story that, like you said, thank God. And I'll share later. Uh, there had been a lot of lives saved since, and mm -hmm. if that happened, then I don't know. I don't know about all these other people, you know. Right. And so I went home, and and my mother. Uh, another a moment there in my recovery is made it back to to Mustang, Oklahoma, from Kansas City, and my mom knew how sick I was, and. She said, Brian, you're going to die, but it's not going to be in my house. Hmm. You either go to English Mountain Recovery in Tennessee or you're out on the street. And for uh, a mother to say that right. to her son, man. So I listened to my mom, thank God. And, and uh, a few days later, I, I found myself in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, my parents had drove with me there and and in a place called Blunt Hospital. And that's where I went through 80 or eight days of detox. And a, and a, a doctor there told me that I had a choice. I could either live for the next eight days or until I was 80. And mm. because my bone marrow was actually shutting down and not producing red blood cells like it should. And that's why I had bruises all up and down my, my body and Right. just plain bruises because i was i was literally dying hmm. so i went through the eight days there and and uh uh finally made it my way to english mountain recovery it's uh near Sevierville, tennessee and i spent 90 days there where i did equine assisted therapy with horses for six weeks hmm. uh did a 12-step program aa uh, what we call doctor's hour with an addiction doctor, uh, acupuncture, trauma therapy with my with my uh, therapist Julie. And if anybody's ever been through trauma therapy, you know you've <laughs> got a good trauma therapist if they're if they're rough on you because she was yes. rough. That's the key part right there. They got to be rough. It was rough, man. She was taking no bullshit. So equine assisted therapy, which is one of the things I talked uh, I talked about during during uh, my public speaking, uh, finished that up, and and there at the very end, I was uh, English Mountain Recovery is sitting up uh, about three quarters way up a, a big mountain in the Smoky Mountains, and you can overlook Mount Leconte and you know these six seven thousand foot mountains up there, and I was looking over uh, you know in the horizon, and it's just like God said. Hey, man, you remember that time in the car when I said, hey, there's a purpose for you? Mm. And I started thinking, I was like, man, if if I went through all this stuff, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, 
struggle with addiction, I thought, man, there's gotta be a whole bunch of others like me out mm. there. Cause we all have, we have, as you get a test, we all have mainly the same experiences, same mm -hmm. call, you know, same seven or eight calls usually. Yep. So that kind of stuck. And I left, uh, left the mound, went home and I started just kind of going through the grind of figuring out, you know, what, how I was going to help people. And, and I started Veterans Flight USA in May of 2017. And we've since, since then, have gotten uh, just over 50 veterans and first responders in a life-saving treatment. That's amazing. That's great. It's, uh, it's weird how your journeys, I know for me, there was a lot of, and I, and I actually just said this with someone else I spoke to on, on, on the podcast. Um, for me, I was angry when um, everything kind of hit the fan, right? When the shit hit the fan and they were finally like, hey, you have PTSD. You're not just an angry, evil prick. You, you, you have PTSD and this is why. I was angry. I was like, you know something? <laughs> I started doing this job at a very young age and I wanted nothing out of it. I just wanted to help people. And, and here I am. And one of the things, um, you know, it, it does so much addiction, but more drug and alcohol abuse is, is part of my story as well. Um, it's such a staple in the firehouse. It always has been. And it's always been accepted. And, it, you know, short of getting in drunken brawls with your with your spouse, it was never frowned upon at all. It was always encouraged. And I honestly think that um, when, when you enter the fire service at a young age, which for men is any time before the age of 25, and honestly, probably even beyond that, you get so influenced that, hey, you have a tough call. We're gonna we're gonna hit the we're gonna hit the six pack or we're gonna go hit the bottle of vodka we're gonna go hit this and everything's gonna be right as rain, we're good, mm -hmm. and it is for a little bit until as you know, it catches up to you and it always catches up to you, man. And and your story, um, you know, seeing seeing that that sign, seeing that you know for you that sign from God, um, I think those of us who have been down this, this similar path. I think we've all had that moment, right? You hit it on the head when, you know, when you're in a, in a high stress job, especially in a, in a district department that answers a lot of calls, mm. you start hitting the bottle. And then instead of having one source of stress with being your job, now you've got, now you've got a store, you got multiple sources of stress with, you know, a, a, a marriage that's on the rocks and your kids and your friends and, now, now it's coming from multiple directions instead of just one with the alcohol. Right. And it just builds, it builds and it dominoes. And, and for us, especially as met as male first responders, um, one of the things that's always sort of, it's an unspoken thing, but it's sort of force fed to us is we don't take the job home. Right. We just assume our spouses don't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And an interesting, and we're going to, we're going to talk about this right now. Um, an interesting conversation I had with uh, uh, Brett Snow a few few weeks ago. Uh, Brett was our one of our guests on the podcast uh, back on episode two. Um, he actually brought up a very interesting point. He did a study. He, he's got a master's degree and did a bunch of education. And he did a study and asked a bunch of couples, and he specifically asked spouses um, about, you know, basically the direct question of, 
do you want to know more about your spouse's job? So your first responder's job. And it was like 48 to 52% wanted to hear about their day, wanted to hear about what they they do. <laughs> and we don't we don't talk about it. We don't we don't share that because it's just so ingrained in us to not do so. And I, and I would rather imagine, Brian, that for you, that was probably a lot of what affected your, your marriage. It, it most definitely was. As a matter of fact, when I met my ex-wife, you know, she she had told she liked she loved it, you know, tell her friends, hey, my husband, Brian, he works for this fire district. And gosh, you see the comfort in fire. And yeah, my mm. my husband's on that and it's it was all the uh it was all the, the romantic stuff right. you know, movies but when i uh had to go to uh had a late night visit to the er when i was on duty uh we were we were fighting a, an apartment fire and it was in july and it was nothing really more than than just uh dehydration it was like 90 degrees outside it was 10 30 at night and and I had to call her and let her know how hey, I was going to be coming home. And things kind of started to change for her because then it wasn't like the movies anymore. Right. It was real life. <laughs> real life. And, yeah. and he had heard a few about a few of the calls and, and it started becoming real for her that, mm. yeah, we really do go out and see some really bad shit. And, uh, we can't actually get hurt or killed. So she didn't really want to hear about the things. And that's when things kind of started to change. And then, and so then therefore I came home and I just would bury it further. I'd go out on our back porch and with that bottle of, of, uh, of booze. And that was my spot. And sometimes I'd be back there all day long and drinking the, the, the bottles with the handle on it and finishing that with another one. Yep. It's so we didn't know. I I had no idea about post traumatic stress or even what it meant. I when I heard PTSD, I always thought of the the Vietnam War, right? Guy that I re, that I remember it referring people referring to it as shell shock, battle fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had no idea. Um, so then when I got to you know, when I got to treatment in Tennessee, that's when I was diagnosed and my trauma therapist explained to me exactly, you know, what it is. And it's, it's the fight or flight, uh, mode and our, our brains getting it, it's stuck in a, in a hyper, um, hyper vigilance mode. Mm -hmm. And so therefore it explained why all the drinking, you know, after I went full time. And so I like to, and I think this is important for people that are struggling with, with addiction and uh, depression and, and other things. The way I explain to people uh, that I hope makes a lot of sense um, is, is it's best to get to the underlying cause of why all the drinking or, or using. So it's, it's much like um, you have a tree in your front yard that you need to go out and water. You want to water the roots of the tree to get to the core of the problem that fixes the whole rest of the tree. Right. So if you go out and you're trying, if if you're struggling with mental health and you're trying uh, an AA group approach or something like that, then you're you're basically just watering the, the leaves and, and branches and you're really not doing much good. 
Right, right. It's uh, the other thing that kind of goes with that, hand in hand with that, is how. Um, and, and this is, I think this is, this would probably be valid for both men and women, but specifically men, we, we lie when we go to therapy. I, I've been in therapy since I was a kid, yeah. and I got diagnosed with PTSD in 2015 when I was whatever, whatever I would have been there, I'm 37. You know what I mean? It's like we lie when we go to therapy, and that ends up just making the situation worse. So then you end up just saying, "Yeah, well, you know, I had a bad, I had a bad shift at work." When really you had a call that reminded you of something from your personal life and it triggered a bunch of shit and you know whatever it is or you know it's been compounding since the you know maybe the dead kid call or whatever it might be and we lie you know that that goes back um you know i got i got on the job in 96 and i always tell people the 90s were were kind of a shit show when it comes to mental health in the first responder world and um you know we had cool turnout gear you know we had the, the hip boots and long coats and shit like that but uh mental health was not spoken of and um it was literally one of those things where you would just you know yeah well just suck it up it's, it's a bad call that's what we do and sure and i know you'll get this during the heat of the call you have to kind of keep those those dials turned up right and in order for us to do our job that's important but what about when the call is done even if, what even when we're just sitting at the station playing cards, watching TV, busting balls, whatever it is. Why do those dials have to be up there? And years and even decades of having those dials up like that all the time. I mean, how can there not be a PTSD and a burnout, you know, epidemic going on right now in the first responder world? Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey, you mentioned um, the fact that when we go into treatment, a lot of us like to just check the box and, and lie, kind of lie yep. our way that is so common, man, especially when you're talking an alpha male guy that, you know, mm -hmm. hey, there, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. You know, someone else wanted me to come to this program. Or whatever. The thing I think probably a lot of our viewers aren't real familiar with equine assisted therapy with horses. Mm. The thing about that is you can't lie. Can't lie to an animal. No. Um, those horses are actually prey animals. And so they've got extremely high senses of, of alertness and intuition. I mean, it's, it's crazy how they can tell they can read, uh, facial expressions. And I mean, they, they know what's going on inside. So what, what equine assisted therapy is, is it's you have, you have the struggling, the person that's struggling with mental health, the horse, and then a trauma therapist that's trained in equine assisted therapy. Mm -hmm. The trauma, the trauma therapist is not really watching you. The, the trauma therapist is watching the horse. Right. Because the horse is giving clues as you're going through your, your task on what's going on inside of you. So it doesn't matter. You can lie to the trauma therapist all you want to, but that horse <laughs> is going to tell the whole picture. Yeah, call and, your bluff. Oh, yeah. And there's, there's no getting around it. <laughs> They've got like a radar. It, you can't. Uh, so then, so then there's trauma, there's dialogue that goes through that. So for example, my first task that I think Julie, my trauma therapist gave me was she said, Brian, go grab that bridle off of the, uh, of the fence post and go put it on the horse. Mm. I walk over there and I grab the, the bridle and I walk back over the horse and I just start putting it on the horse's face. 
And I start trying to get it on and the horse is pulling back. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You know, I totally skipped the part of going over and asking, you're kind of asking permission to be in that horse's space and you're making, you're gradually getting that horse comfortable with you. So I think as first responders, we're used to go, 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 get the shit done, get Mm -hmm. the, Get the cutters and spreaders out, cut that bitch open, get them to the hospital. You're not there asking permission. You're, you know, you're getting on it. You're doing CPR, whatever you got to do. So with equine therapy, it's, it's a transition from unknowingly having to take control and presenting things. So Julie, my, my therapist would say, okay, Let's talk about the way that you just treated that horse. You went and picked up that bridle. You just shoved it right on that horse's face without saying a word. Let's talk about your marriage now. Mm. I didn't want to talk about it. Of course not. Because it made total total sense. And she said, let's talk about your 11-year-old son, Aiden, and how you treat him. Mm. I didn't want to talk about that because it made total sense. Yep. So that's what equine therapy is all about. And that's amazing. I, I've heard a lot. I actually haven't experienced it myself. I experienced, uh, you know, like uh, service animals with like dogs and whatnot. Uh, we've had a friend, family friend who used to train them. And, um, but it's interesting that you bring up the control part. And we're going to actually talk about that in a few seconds. Uh, we're just going to take a quick break, folks, and have a quick word from our sponsors, First Responder Coaching. Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responders' whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle. All right, so I'm here with Brian Paul, and we just got done talking about equine therapy, and he brought up a word that is kind of goes hand-in-hand with a lot of... um, trauma and a lot of uh, PTSD talk, and that is control. And I didn't realize until, because like you, like you said earlier, Brian, I really didn't know a lot about PTSD until, you know, I got diagnosed with it. And I knew of it, of course, you know, it's at that point, it was 2015. We've been hearing about the soldiers coming back and having PTSD, but I thought it was a, it was a military thing. Um, one of the biggest things I ended up finding out was a lot of my trauma was so centered around a sense of loss control and apparently it's uh very common with first responders uh, firefighters and law enforcement specifically uh because we have so much what we think we have so much control when we're on the job uh you know we think that you know we're putting the wet stuff and the red stuff and you know therefore we have control in that situation and, and because of or maybe because of our traumas 
whatever they be, whether they're personal, professional, whatever they may uh, encompass, uh, we have a very high sense of loss of control. So I know for me, like I said, for me, when I went through my, my therapy, we worked on a lot of control issues. Did you, did you end up experiencing that when you were going through a lot of your recovery? Yeah. And the, uh, the trauma, the trauma therapist, it's, it's, uh, it helps you unravel that. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're not, if we're not aware of it, the whole, you know, those around us are like, Hey man, you know, you're, you're, they can see it, but we can, if we're not aware of it. So that trauma therapy, uh, helps us unravel that. And in turn, that helps, that helps with, um, well, the first step of, of defeating alcohol. And that's, uh, realizing that we're powerless over alcohol and we yep. don't. Love it. That's right. It's the, it's the humility. And, and even if it's not alcohol, you know, it, it, alcohol and drugs tend to be, uh, focused on a lot when it comes to the, you know, addictive su- substances, but there's a lot out there. I mean, I spent, uh, so, you know, I worked in private EMS as well as uh, municipal fire and EMS. And I, I can't tell you how many people I worked with that would spend half their paycheck, three quarters of their paycheck on scratch tickets. You know, then there's porn and then there's, there's hookers and, and sex and, and cheating on your spot. I mean, there's so many, and it all comes back to the same premise. It's all, it's all that we have no power over that. And you have to acknowledge that at some point, you have to acknowledge what you do have control over and what you don't. And I think that's a huge step in, in anyone's recovery is, is acknowledging that. Cause when you acknowledge, you know, what you do and don't have control over, that's when you can start growing. Yeah, exactly. You, you know? Yeah. It's, well, it's a, it's a serenity, serenity prayer as well. You know, mm-hmm. the, um, I think one of the things that sort of, you know, we kind of talked about this when I, you know, I, I mentioned about the firehouse always pushing, you know, drinking and stuff like that. Part of this all feeds into the stigma, right? And, you know, as, as men, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, society based or, you know, culturally because of the job we did, um, there is a, a very heavy pressure to not talk about our, our feelings. And, you know, I know, you know, the Northeast tends to be, you know, whatever, you know, we have our, when it comes to the fire service, you know, you have New York and Boston and Philadelphia, and, the, and a lot of those tend to be at the forefront of anyone thinks of firefighting in America, they tend to think of those departments, right? And you always have the same image, right? Some guy with a burnt up helmet, you know, with, you know, you can't read his the emblem on the front because it's all charred up and he's got a big booger catching mustache and, you know, leather boots and all this. And it's like, oh, tough guy stuff. Part of, you know, what I experienced, and I'm, you know, I'm going to toss the ball in your court in a second was because of that tough guy mentality I had to maintain being a, you know, a bigger guy at six, five and, you know, growing up in a firefighting family, I had to maintain that. And all I wanted to do was just be able to tell someone, well, that call really fucking sucked. And I'm having nightmares because of it, because of this, whether it was, you know, whatever. Um, And I'm always interested when I talk to people from other parts of the country, because, you know, I'm just in the recent years, I've only been able to get and talk to people from other parts. What was your experience when you first started reaching out? When you first started realizing you had to get help, the people in your circle, what did that look like when they realized Brian has addiction issues, Brian has trauma issues? Well, people, people in my department really, uh, they kind of reached in. I didn't mm-hmm. reach. Um, 
So our our union rep, uh, he 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 said, "Hey man, you you're going to be called into the chief's office," and uh, went talk to the chief. And I was still, you know, just hey, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't know what you're talking about, kind of deal. <laughs> but I went from I went from uh, being what we call the golden child and and high evaluations and all all my calls and doing real well uh, to not doing well at all. And I think everybody can notice. And so I never did reach out. And, and I think most like most, you know, and uh, my, my district really wasn't not up to speed on how to properly deal with someone that, you know, one of the, one of the firefighters that is struggling. And mm-hmm. I was actually referred to a family counselor um, not a trauma therapist. So I went and, and uh, checked the box, you know, and, right. and, but I did more explaining what the fire service was like and got very little, if any, you know, useful therapy. And so I never did, I never did reach out. So now being an advocate on the other end, I know how hard it is for folks to reach out and, there's times where I go up a month and I don't hear from anybody and I, mm. I get rated and I'm thinking, man, you know, I've got 5,000 followers. I was just on, you know, I just shared my story on a television interview or something. Why the hell is someone reaching out? Right. But then I realized and I remember back then, it's like, well, for the same reason you did. Exactly. And, and, that, and that's tough to hold on to. Yeah. We want people to reach out. That's why we do what we do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's that. So what I, so I think what I really try to focus on now is not, not trying to be good at everything as mm-hmm. far as it, just trying to be good at removing that shame, guilt and embarrassment that was so heavy on me and so heavy on so many others removing that shame guilt and embarrassment and replacing it with hope inspiration and understanding i love it and if we can do that if we just do those things we're going to make some headway we're going to keep making headway and reach more people amen you know and and i think we are and i and i just had a conversation with someone we talked um it was actually um someone from canada and we talked about whether he felt that, you know, the stigma was changing. And I, and I do, I, I feel that we are slowly, I, I think it's a glacier on molasses, uh, how slowly it's moving, but it's, uh, it is changing. And just based in the last, we'll say five to 10 years at this point with now, you know, being in 2023, um, there is now departments that have full on, uh, clinicians on, on staff. They, they now have, I know of several departments in this country that that have a full um, mental health division. Uh, Las Vegas is one of them uh, with, with Jeff Dill, uh, who I'm sure a lot of our viewers and, and even Brian, I'm sure you've heard of Jeff Dill. Uh, very big name in the mental health game. And it is starting to change. It is starting to change. And uh, this kind of leads us into this next part that I want, I want to touch on. And that's these, I always talk about it, the, the age thing. I feel like there is this bracket with those of us who have become advocates, uh, there's an age bracket. And I think it's between 36 and like 52. Almost everyone I know, men at least, who do a lot of what we're doing 
are all in that age bracket. And that's great. And it's great for two reasons. The first one is we're, we're men and we're older men, right? So we tend to be more respected and more looked up to. The other part when it comes to culturally with the job is we're the veterans, right? We're the salty guys. We're the ones who've been around. So if we're talking about this, the other guys will, and the ones coming in the door will. And I think that's a lot of what's changing the stigma and giving hope to um, those in the older generation and hope to the new generation. And what I hope happens, and I'd like to get your input on this, is as time goes on, and this becomes more of the normal conversation where we're dealing with this, you know, the people who are now new, the rookies, the the probies or whatever, uh, the people in the academy, they will end up having a career where the, there isn't a shame, there isn't guilt that's associated with, with mental health and addiction. And they'll eventually be the administrators, right? They'll eventually right. be the brass. And so one of the things I always talk to the guests about is proactive resiliency. Uh, and we talk, we tend to associate resiliency with after, right? So after the shit hits the fan, we, we establish our resiliency after we go through failed coping skills and whatever. Um, I like to think that if we can get these in to the academy level and the probies, um, these skills, this learning, this education, this what we're doing, um, this could really be the turning point because uh, you really need that generation to kick off. What would, what's your thoughts on that when it comes to, you know, starting right away, starting at the academies and the schools? Yeah, man, you made you made some really good points there, man. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I'll after you said it, it made me realize that most of the advocates that do what we do uh, are right around that same age group. You don't it's really it's weird. Ones are young ones. Yeah. It, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me until you said that. Uh, but, and then proactive, that's, that is, that is absolutely the key, man, because why, why wait until a guy has a, a you know, what was mental health issue that you know could have been fixed without going to a 90-day program mm. um and then therefore you know the addiction and you know the whatever level of, of using or, or drinking uh, why don't we i agree i think that we there there is progress uh, that why don't we be more proactive in the fire academies in the, the MS schools, I remember my instructor briefly mentioning, hey, you're going to have some rough days. You're going to have to go and talk to someone about it. But that was about a two minute long conversation that was on to <laughs> on to the one minute drill. Remember? Oh, <laughs> so why not? Um, I agree. I think we're going in the right direction. And. I think the more acceptable it is and and maybe unfortunately the more problems that people become aware of, they become extending that in the fire academies and, and not just saying, hey, you're gonna need to talk to someone. Let's say, hey, you're gonna need to talk to someone and here's who to talk to, and here's a little bit about what happens. Right. Not taking a lot of time out of the fire academy, but just giving a little bit of information of, hey, here's your Here's your out if you need it. Mm -hmm. Here's your here's your avenue to help. Same thing in the fire departments, and you know, having hey, look, you just became a full time firefighter. Congratulations, man! You're great at the job. We're excited to have you. And this is a can be a tough job. 
and here are some resources for you from day one. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's all about having those conversations, which is which is why um, uh, first responder coaching is, is part of this podcast. Is because I learned when I when I get connected with coaching, just how important having those those proactive conversations were, and it's really about jumping into this before there's a problem. And you know, we're such a reactive culture. Um, the firefighters and, and, and cops specifically, but all, all responders, we, that's our job. We, we respond, we react. And even with our mental health, we're waiting until crisis happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need to stop doing that. It's killing us. And I honestly think that's been a lot of the driving change um, has been how much more aware we are, how many of us are dying. And, right. you know, it's sad. It's awful and it shouldn't be happening. But I'd like to think that these people aren't dying in vain. They're, they're, they're bringing about a change. Mm-hmm. I hope, I hope they're bringing about a change because there's got to be a reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of it, a lot of it is, is knowing and education as well. Like when we go through the fire academy, we're, we're taught, uh, in my experience, we're taught from pretty much day one. If you have any sort of a problem, see your captain, mm-hmm. see your lieutenant, see, you know, yep. go paint a command with mental health instead of going to see your captain, which most, let's be real, most people aren't going to anyway. Nope. Or we wouldn't have the problem, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of going to see your captain, we need them to go to their HR lady or person go in and close the door and say, I need help. Here's what I need help with. Okay. I'm depressed. I'm having problems with anxiety. I'm uh, having problems with drinking or using at that point in time, that HR person is locked in by HIPAA law. Mm-hmm. That person can't go out the door and go tell the chief or captain or crew. So there's our Avenue around the culture, right? The stigma. Mm. Because there's laws already in place, and I've got some stories with that. But I think we all do. I think we all do. (laughs) Yeah, but that that's the avenue that I recommend people take. And then from there, it's if you've been on the job for a year or more, it's just using your FMLA and the crew, the crew, your chain of command. They they don't know where you're at unless you want to tell them. Right. And I, and I I hope that, you know, eventually that doesn't have to happen. I mean, we we right now, you know, you if you have medical problems, you have cancer or, or whatever, not even cancer. You, you just stub your toe and you can't walk on it. They they know you're not coming in. Right. And they will probably know mm-hmm. why. And I think uh, with time, you know, I think that uh, hopefully it goes beyond just having to go directly to HR and, and hopefully you can go to your captain or maybe the senior guy. Maybe maybe the senior man or or woman uh, on your shift is is someone you can probe. Maybe the union steward. Maybe maybe someone like that. Who knows? But I, I think that's all. As the stigma breaks down, I, I think that will that will go with it. And uh, like I said, the age things really was was doing a lot of it because it's it's the senior folks on the job right now that are willing to talk about this. There's so many of us in that age bracket that you know, got 20 plus years in the job or, or had 20 plus years in the job or whatever, and uh, are of an age where we're a little bit more respected. When we talk, people listen. 
Right. Yeah. You know, and it's it's a kind of a very short story. I had I had worked under a captain on a shift that that I was forced onto due to seniority, and hmm. uh, no one liked to work on the shift, man. <laughs> but, There's always that shift, right? Zuzi uh, C shift is literally that one, right? This one was a shift. Yeah. Oh man, go figure. And uh, he was just a real old school crusty bastard, man. There's just no other way around it. And it was just, a, in my opinion, kind of a toxic environment. And that's why no one wanted to work on a ship. But, but I um, had just re- fairly recently, about a year and a half ago, uh, heard that he is now a, an advocate hmm. and helping people with with mental health. And and so he's kind of turned the corner himself. And so hopefully he's, you know, you know that. He's having a better influence on, on that district. It sounds like he probably faced his own uh, his own demons and finally realized that, you know, in my experience, I think a lot of the people who are so quote unquote against talking about this probably have more problems than the people who are speaking about it or willing to hear about it. Um, and I and I think the turning point with a lot of these people is when they finally get an opportunity to face them. Uh, I was not too dissimilar back in the day. I was definitely, I, I didn't necessarily call anyone out if they were having issues, but I was definitely someone who just because of my own issues, because I wasn't facing them and I was terrified by them. I was someone who just expected everyone else to do the same. And mm-hmm. maybe it's an alpha male thing. Maybe it's a, a, a guy thing. Maybe it's just the culture. But um, I think for a lot of us, when we finally face our shit and get ourselves out of the suck, it's, you know, you can, you can, you, you become a more approachable person. You become a more warm person. You become, honestly, when you deal with your feelings, you become a stronger person. And I know you know this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had, we had one of our, our guys on that shift, uh, Matt Young, good friend of mine and really good young firefighter, you know, real likable guy. We used to, he, he and I would go out in the, in the, uh, in, in the fire bay and we did shift change and and came in one one morning and heard the news he had ended his life with a firearm the night before mm. and i you know maybe that had a an impact on on that captain that has now kind of turned the corner and, and not being you know not being an asshole he was there's usually there's usually the finding moment right i think we all have them yeah so, but, um, so yeah, so I, I got out of treatment and it's kind of a new, new lease on life, like hitting the reset button. And I was telling you, it's, it's re- removing the shame, guilt, and embarrassment and replacing with hope, inspiration, and understanding. And when I, this stuff started kind of gradually coming to me, um, that's what I do now is I like to share my story of recovery. Uh, I had, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I played high school football and, and I graduated in 92 and I, I, I hadn't played since I was 17, 18 years old. <laughs> and I had been doing push-ups at English mountain. And when I started there, I could only do 15 push-ups because I'm telling you, I was sick. Right. Health, I started doing push-ups and by the time the last month I was there, I was doing 300 a day, every day. 
Wow. And I got out and I got back home to, to uh, Oklahoma and I was approached by uh, the owner of the Oklahoma city Jaguars, semi-professional football team. And they said, he said, Hey man, um, I know you were a pretty good player in high school and wonder if you want to just come try out. (laughs) (laughs) I said, man, you do realize I'm 44. I was 44 at the time. (laughs) And, well, just, you know, just come and try out, you know, and it, it's full on tackle football. It's, it's the real deal. And I'd asked my, you know, my friends and family, most everybody said, man, it's not a good idea. <laughs> so, of course, so of course that's what I ended up doing. I wouldn't try it out. And, and um, there's a lot to that story, but long story short, I, I had made the Oklahoma city Jaguars football team at the age of 44. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not the way I was when I was 18. I wasn't 18 anymore. I was playing against none of us, though, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing against guys in their early 20s that some of them are Division One guys. And oh boy. Uh, so I played. And then, so through that, I had a buddy of mine that I went to OCU with that's in the local acting community. And, and here in Oklahoma, they're, they're actually actually making quite a few movies around here. Hmm. And Brian Camus says, Hey man, they're doing this, this movie called the Turkey bowl and it, all these big celebrities in it, John Beasley, Barry Switzer, Matt Jones from breaking bad, hmm. Donald from forgetting Sarah Marshall, um, all these guys. And again, I'm like, you, you realize I'm not an actor, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm a grunt. I'm a 45th infantry division grunt and firefighter. <laughs> so again, I said, well, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So fast forward a year and a half later, and there I am up on the big screen in, in the uh, season premiere of the, uh, the Oklahoma premiere, the Turkey Bowl that got picked up by landscape. This movie went nationwide and I'm sitting in the movie theater right next to Barry Switzer and all these other celebrities and the, the producer and my mom watching myself on the big screen. I'm going, how did this guy get up there? Life's a crazy journey, right? It's crazy. Um, I originally began sharing my story uh, in at English Mountain, you know, and and to the kind of a small group of, of guys that were in our, it was our group therapy. And I was embarrassed. I didn't think anybody would care. And I started sharing my story and I just fought through, I just fought through the, the shame and guilt, embarrassment. And, and I, as I began realizing it was helping people, I started doing television interviews and I had done, I think at this point now I've done 15 television interviews, 18 podcasts, 24 times on national radio, Mm. social media. And it's just, you know, it's just sharing your story. And then I was sponsored to speak um, live speaking um, with a program called Transformations Treatment Center in, in Florida, where we've gotten uh, 24, 24 of the 50 veterans and first responders in there. So they they were sponsoring me to go fly out in different cities around the country and, hmm. and share my story. So looking back, you know, it's it's like I never, never in my wildest dreams thought 
that this is the path that that God would have for me. But remember back when I was saying you back in the, when I was back when I was telling you back in the car when I was struggling and suicidal and addiction. Yep. Looking back on that, I'm like now I think, man, this has been incredible. And all all I've done through my recovery is said yes to God. Sit. That's it. It was that fork in the road, man, and it's it's weird. It's weird when when you when you go down whatever form of recovery it is, um, and you embrace it and you own it. Uh, it's weird to look back. You know, our stories are similar in a lot of ways, and the opportunities I've had since I've healed and, and began healing, uh, your work in progress, obviously, but. Um, is, is mind-blowing because I never would have thought I would do like you. I never would have thought I would do the things I'm doing these days, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And I was the same way. I'm a grunt. I, I, I was always a private in, in both jobs. And I always thought I was just going to run calls the rest of my life. And uh, I was okay with that. But like you, you know, you sit here now and it's like, oh, I'm doing this and doing that. And it's like, I love it. And it sounds like you love it. And it's just, this was God's plan. This is, this is, it was not the alternative. It was not to not be here. Yeah, it's it really is amazing. Uh, we have we have our way, and God has His way. And my way was, you know, originally, you know, going out with alcohol and a bullet. Right. And God plans, and uh, like I said, I am just like everybody else watching this this podcast. Um, I just say yes to God's plan. That's what you got to do, right? Yep. So I always ask this, and I think I already know your answer. I think I know your answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because our viewers may not. Um, I like to ask people, if you could go back and do it all over again, knowing what you know now, would you? Man, that is a... When I when I go when I look backwards, uh, man, it can I'm not gonna lie to you, it can get really really depressing, mm-hmm. you know, losing a job and and not going nearly as far in the military as I would have. Uh, that looking back is depressing, but looking forward, it's very very positive. Right. And imagining you know what's what's ahead, and the biggest thing for me is we're all going to leave this earth someday Mm -hmm. and it's not about us. It's about what we leave behind. And so that being said, I'm, I'm blessed that I had those, you know, I found that dark pit and made it out. And so the answer to that is yes. I'm glad that I went in this direction and because it's God's, it's God's, um, it's God's plan for me and, and not my own. Like I say, you know, as hard as it is to look back on the failures, looking forward, it's really exciting. So, yeah, I don't think I'd change it. Amen, man. I'm the same. I'm the same way. And you know, I think we're all. I don't like the expression "everything happens for a reason." I I, I change the words to basically say the same thing, and that is, uh, we are all where we're supposed to be at any given moment, and uh, that you know that all whether whatever you believe in. Uh, everyone believes in different things, but if, if it's God's plan is what you believe in, um, that is basically that. If if his plan is to have you in a certain spot, you're going to be there. And um, those of us, 
uh, all of us, but those of us who are trying to uh, do what we are, who have been where we were, um, we're where we're supposed to be, I think. And uh, I hold on to that every day. And I'm, I have the same. I, that's why I said I did. I, I don't need to ask you, but I'm going to ask you because maybe other people would have a different impression. But I knew you were going to basically say that because that's how I feel, man. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. Hey, I want to, if it's okay with you, man, I'd like to, we've got um, a couple of things I want to show real quick to the audience, but this are Veterans Life USA pamphlets, and that is actually my bio that, that you read earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in the front, we when you start out an organization, you start real generic. Sometimes you have to take pictures <laughs> off the internet. And you, you know, oh, and yeah. Later on, go back and go, God, man, that was really not a very good pamphlet, but uh, and these, we've actually got two of our success stories. This guy's name is Nick Thayer, and he was a Oklahoma City area firefighter EMT that I found in crisis and was able to get him into treatment. And just just an incredible story. We, myself and one of our Veterans Flight volunteers, actually literally picked him up out of his deathbed mm. and got him to the airport. And just a miracle story. And and I went to uh, to tour transformations. Uh, I think this is the second time I was down there. This guy Nick, he stayed after treatment, and he's a he's a firefighter paramedic down there in the Delray Beach area. Oh. He actually picked me up from the airport this time, <laughs> and um, full circle. Yeah, full circle, man. Uh, this guy's named Jason Mormon. He's an Army vet. We were able to get him into treatment. Another great story. And but these are our pamphlets and and um, we've also got and so we of course we use these these are great tools to have because uh, you know it's actually success stories and we use those during booths and events and and speaking and all kinds of stuff and then we've got these challenge coins I'm trying to get where nice I can see it yep yeah these were donated and you can see. You know, they're, they're nice called. Uh, yeah, nice. those are beautiful. It says, when the demons, when the demons called, when the demons come, call me and we'll fight them together. I love it. And these, these coins are not, uh, they're not sold. They're not just given away. These are earned through extraordinary efforts, uh, right. both to our, our veterans flight team, as well as supporters and people from treatment programs and just people making a big impact. But, um that's one of those things when you run a an all-volunteer organization you you have to come up with different ways to recognize you know your your team's efforts that's right that's what you know that's you know running running veterans life it's it's not like your uh your your boss at work that you know has a paycheck and benefits for you uh it comes down to just leadership leading people the way you'd want to be led and uh, amen to that we've we've been doing it now um you know going on six years so that's amazing it's always good to hear that there's there's still some good people that are trying to trying to be a leader and not just a uh a boss or, or point of authority yeah well like you know i tell i tell our people uh they you know i'm the president and founder of the organization we have a board and you know leadership and but as I tell them, they don't work for me. I work for them. Mm. They tell me what what they need to be successful at performing our mission. And so it's kind of like a 
it's kind of like a you have the oh the chain of command it looks like a triangle you have the chief on the top and then your your captains and your paramedics and your emts mm-hmm. ours is kind of reverse where mm-hmm. where me being the president i'm on bottom and our volunteers they're you know they're the ones that they get to help make decisions and and lead yeah the basis of leadership right there you know is um it is it's lonely at the top but at the same time you know you want to you want to give the tools and the resources and support to those um who are helping really make either the company or the organization um function you know and and that comes through leading them not bossing them and that's that's always so refreshing to hear mm-hmm. well it really is. it's for me it you know it is it's a lot of work but so the concept is instead of having one leader that that puts in the grind and and, and kind of blazes a trail leaders making leaders mm-hmm. instead of leader now you've got nine leaders right it's all about the next the next step up right it's all about training uh the person coming after you and uh bosses don't do that leaders do and as you are well aware in the fire service specifically but first responder world just because they have rank doesn't make them a leader right now even in the military it's the same way yeah those bugles or stripes or you know bars don't i think to to folks you know to the grunts on the ground the that shiny thing on your hat really doesn't mean a whole lot nope uh, it's how you it's how you lead and how you treat your your troops it really is it really is and and that's huge man that's huge. It's always good to hear that there's, there's people out there, you know, trying to instill the great uh, qualities that leaders uh, really should have. Because um, unfortunately, and I think this this may never go away fully, but uh, the first responder role definitely has a lot of, you know, folks that um, aren't the best of leaders. Um, a lot of people just associate us having this because you have the brass that you are, and, and it is always the case. And so it's always refreshing to hear those organizations. Uh, setting a good example but uh brian this has been a great conversation and um i'm just i'm just glad we finally get to hang out and talk honestly it's yeah it's been great yeah so it's you've been good hearing hearing your story as well i know we we kind of follow each other on social media for a while and but Mm -hmm. yeah to, to be able to get together like this and and talk it's just been great man so again thank you so much for having me Brian, it's been uh, it's been all my pleasure, and uh, folks, stay tuned for for more guests coming up as we uh, now get into this new year. Uh, today's episode has been with Brian Paul. Brian, thank you again for coming on. Uh, this has been a great, great conversation, brother. Absolutely, thank you. All right, folks. As always, take care. Stay safe. What the hell?